check out our friends at Linquicity Gifts. Linquicity Gifts is a metaphysical store offering natural gemstone bead bracelets, signature and zodiac, designed and made in the United States, as well as raw and polished stones, crystal balls, pendulums, tarot cards, natural crystal points, wands, and so much more. Their beautiful signature design bracelets can aid with creativity, balance, focus, and well-being. Visit their website using the link in the description or visit linguistitygifts.com and use coupon code FKN to get 10% off your first order over $20. Back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today, my guest is Darren Grimes. First, I have a couple of announcements. If you have a business and you want to advertise with Forbidden Knowledge News, email me, forbiddenknowledgenews at gmail.com. We have unbeatable pricing and ad packages. Our website is forbiddenknowledge.news. This is also the home of the Forbidden Knowledge Network, where you're going to find amazing podcasts from our community, like Raised by Giants, Inception, Ancient Gift, Going Down the Rabbit Hole, and many more. Forbidden Knowledge News is always available on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, and all podcast platforms. Check us out on Rockfin. This is where you get our premium content and all the premium content from every creator on Rockfin. You can also create a free account and get access to everyone's free content, including all our regular shows as well. You just go to rockfin.com slash FKN plus or click that link in the description. Today, I want to welcome back to the show Darren Grimes. He spent his early adulthood working in the steel industry in Calgary, Alberta, where he started the Grimerica Show. Today, he is a podcast host, author, and entrepreneur. He has since fully embraced his indigenous heritage and attempt to pass down to his children some of the knowledge and teachings that were almost lost to himself. Darren, welcome. How you doing? I'm good, Chris. Thanks for having me back on the show. It's excellent to have you back. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I want to talk about your new books, uh, Canadian Shame, The Indian Act in Residential Schools, and in their own words, testimonials, testimony from the survivors of Canada's residential school program. And this covers such in- extremely important topics that many Americans, I believe, have no idea about. Most of us have a certain perception of Canada created from the media and Hollywood and things they've heard over the years. I think we just recently got a glimpse of the levels to 
Canadian government's corruption. Just a little, a little glimpse of it the past couple of years, uh, but I think very few know the depths of what's going on and what has happened historically there, and your books are a great way to learn about this. Now, it's been a while since we've had you on. Uh, remind the audience a little bit about yourself, your background, and what led you to write these books. Sure. Uh, well, we, I started, I guess I started, it all started with the podcast, The Grand America Show like nine years ago now and um really i how it the book started was i was actually we were looking at maybe doing some shows on it because the kamloops thing had come out about the the mass grave discovered which honestly i I think there's some hoopla Uh, people are always asking me what i think about it is it real is it fake i don't I don't really well, care. My my book's less about those those bodies. I mean, the Canadian media has a, a habit of the Canadian government has a habit and a history of sort of whitewashing some of these these sites. And and the, the thing that I think a lot of Americans might have got caught up and a lot of Canadians, too, was that like these were a bunch of maybe dead kids that we didn't nobody knew about until now, um, where it is you know everyone everyone probably knew that those kids were dead um you know they were probably buried in some sort of uh makeshift graveyard and it probably just got forgotten about you know over over the years i guess where my books come in is more on the fact of what those kids were doing there in the first place you know whether they were buried in a mass grave or it was secret or there is bodies or there isn't doesn't really matter to me. So, I mean, it does. Obviously, it matters to the, that tribe. It matters to those kids. It matters to their families and to a bunch of other people. But for the purposes of of the residential school program, it doesn't really change what happened there. Um, a lot of kids went there and a lot of kids didn't go back. The kids that did go home um, were fucked up. Um you know, we have drinking problems. You know, I, I don't have the stats in front of me now, but if you look at the one stat I can tell you off the top of my head is that in in 2016, the stat was still so Aboriginal, Native American, Indian kids, whatever you want to call them. Indigenous, I think, is the new the new word of the day. Just for the record, I am a a registered Indian. I have a a, a card that is issued to me by Indians. I actually, I think it's Northern Affairs Canada now, but the legislation that provides me my status card and all that is the Indian Act. So I'm still governed by the Indian Act. So I still describe myself as an Indian and I still use the word Indian. I don't use that in context for any other Indigenous people in Canada. The People can decide to be called whatever they're called. I still use the term Indian because that's how the Canadian government looks at me and defines me. Um, and that's, that's something some people might not, let me close that quick. Sorry. No worries. Might not understand is that Indian act legislation is still an act today. Um, whereas in America, we've, you've got the system still, I mean, there's still some problems in America, but one thing the Americans have got right lately, I don't know when they did it. might've been in 1927 might ring a bell, but America is now like, not all the tribes, but a lot of the tribes now have their own land and they own it. 
Uh, whereas in Canada, the federal government still owns all the land. Any Indian reserve in Canada is owned by the federal government and the land is sort of held in trust. You, the land's yours till there's no Indians left type thing. Um, and the Canadian government is who decides who is and isn't an Indian in Canada. So I've got my status card and I'm in the process of trying to get my daughters their status cards. And um, the government just says no. And then you have to go to court. And, and so whereas in America, all the tribes sort of decide who's, you know, like the Lakota would decide who's a Lakota member. It's up to the tribe to decide who's a member of the tribe and now, what benefits they would get. Whereas in Canada, that's all decided by the federal government still. Now, I want to find out what, first of all, with the, the status card, what does, what does that get you in, in reality? Um, you know, in, as, as an indigenous person, what does a status card get you? Well, these days, so uh, uh, these days it gets me hunting rights. So I can, it now varies province to province, but in Alberta, I can just, you know, hunt whatever I want, whenever I want. I can fish without observing limits or, or things like that. Um, I still have to follow the fishing seasons. I think, I mean, I, for the most part, I follow most of the seasons anyway, because those are what works best for the fish and the animals. You don't want to be fishing when they're mating and stuff like that. I do hunt a few species in the spring. Um, but you know, if you are doing that, you want to make sure they're males. Cause the last thing you want to do is shoot a, a pregnant something or other. That'd be not a good experience. I wouldn't imagine. Mm. So, uh, that's a, I use mine for mostly the other thing I use mine for is uh, so it varies band to band, but there is some coverage for dental. So you can get some dental. You can maybe get some schooling covered at some extent. Um, I think when I went to college, they might've gave me like uh, a couple hundred bucks a month while I was in school to help out. Right. And, but I still pay, you know, more tax and, Anybody I know, which is sort of a good thing because, you know, it implies that I'm doing all right, but um, I don't get any tax breaks or anything like that, which is a big misconception in Canada. If you want to. So if I wanted to not pay tax, I would have to live on the reserve. But if I live on the reserve, I can't own any land. So it's kind of like uh, catch 22. Would you rather own property or would you rather? So if an Indian in Canada wants to own land, he would have to leave the reserve and, and buy it. At which case he'd be given up his right to not pay tax. So he would pay tax on the, on any land he bought. And I pay tax off my paychecks and I pay, you know, tax everywhere I go. Now I think I can use my status card, not in Alberta, but in BC, I think I could get maybe cheaper gas. Wow. Which never used to be a big deal, but maybe now. The other big thing it's good for um, is tra traveling to the United States, which was a big one during COVID when nobody else was allowed to travel. So the U.S. government will not impede my ability to travel into the States regardless of any COVID rules or any, I don't have to do any tests. Every time I enter the United States, I'm considered a permanent resident. So I could just, decide to get a job and live there and uh, become an American, I guess, which uh, wasn't a real perk before. You didn't even really think about it. Yeah. And all of a sudden now, the last couple of years, I've been able to keep traveling to events and stuff like that. And uh, so that's been nice. And I, 
I think I'm exempt as well from a bunch of these guns that the our our Prime Minister Trudeau blacklisted a bunch of guns that he's trying to buy back like two years ago. And I, I don't think I have to give mine back. Oh, that's a good thing, man. Yeah. So I might start a collection service where I like store all my buddies scary looking rifles. But anyway, back to the question is I was actually doing some research because we were going to be talking about it on the podcast and I don't know a lot about it. I didn't know a lot about it. So, and I'm, I'm an Indian, so it was coming up all the time, you know? Well, what do you know about this? What do you know about that? And we don't, we don't get taught anything about the residential school system in Canada. Nothing, nothing. So me being an Indian at 30 years old had no idea that it even really fucking existed that it ever happened other yeah. than because I was estranged from my real father. So from that side of the family and said, so, okay, well, time to start finding out. And what I quickly found was that I couldn't like, I could find some stuff, but it was really hard to find. And the, the one thing I couldn't find anywhere on the government of Canada website was the more egregious versions of the Indian act. So everything on the government of Canada website is from 1985 to now so it's you know it still says indian in there and this and that but all the stuff about indians not being allowed off the reserve without a transfer paper not being allowed to buy ammunition you know all these rules throughout the years mandatory residential school attendance none of that stuff is on this living document that's now on the government of canada page Mm. so i couldn't find it anywhere and uh i found an old ass scanned version of it and I paid some dude on Fiverr in India, like $500 to Canadian. So like 200 bucks, regular money. That's no, not that bad, but um, to retype the whole thing so you could read it because it was like useless. You know, you can kind of read it when it's a scan thing like that, but you can't do anything with it. So we, we, uh, I kind of got into it that way. And then I was going to write like a little introduction to this consolidated thing of the Indian act, which I was going to put online and make available for free. And it was just going to be, cause I couldn't find this anywhere. Here it is. Here's all this legislation, all the shit that the Canadian government doesn't want you to see retyped, remastered, ready to go. But right before I was about to do that, I found that there was like six uh, band, which is a tribe in Canada. We call them bands. Uh, six different bands had on their website every version of the Indian Act that ever existed in a nice PDF. So it turned out that I just wasted my my time and money doing all this. But I had also, my introduction had spread on to this four-page thing and I was looking into all this other stuff. So I just said, you know what? I feel like I'm in Canada. I'm an Indian in Canada and I can't, but I got, I'm on like 15 or 20 different web pages to try and chase down all these different threads that are sort of in the book. And I just sort of pulled all that together. Why can't there just be one spot that people can come to find all this stuff? You know, if I, my kids ask me a question well, this year to this year. So uh, the book's very much, uh, timeline and source like that from all these different places where I could sort of take all the stuff that was out there and make it available in one spot. My goal was to keep it under a hundred pages because I wanted to keep it very 
not intimidating. I mean, I love books. I love the longer a book is, especially if it's good fiction, the longer, the better. And I want there to be like 10 of them so that I can get into this other universe and just exist there for a while. But most people, the longer a book is, you could just see their sort of eyes glaze over. So I was like, let's keep this thing around 100 pages. It's not too intimidating. You can read the thing in two hours. Uh, I, I went over a bit. I think we ended up around 170 pages or something like that. But it's still, the audiobook is only four and a half hours long. So, you know, it's not too much. And you can probably read faster than the audiobook goes. So, if you, you know, if you're a decent reader, you can probably get through it in three hours. Awesome, man. Yeah, I myself like to enjoy the longer books, too. I like getting lost in those. Uh, I think we should, for for those that don't know, and it's important to talk about the what the Indian Act is and maybe a little bit of history behind it, as much as you could give us, really. Sure. Well, that's kind of... So in America, um, it very much... A lot of this, your stuff... I mean, you guys have a lot of treaties down there, too, but but... America straight up went to war with the Indians. So it was very much more a conquering, I would say, in some ways. Um, and then, I mean, then you could talk about how the treaties were, you know, lied and manipulated and whittled down after that. And I, I'm sort of speaking a little bit of ignorance about the American system, but that's, you know, I know enough about it to speak about it on, on the on broadly. So, but, you know, you have the American Indian Wars that are kind of taking place all over the place. Some tribes just submit. Then you got the Lakotas and all these other ones that are having actual wars that they lose. Um, whereas in Canada, you don't really ever have that. We don't really have those wars. We kind of just have these sort of backroom deals that get made with Indians that can't read or really understand the deals they're making. And they get sort of put onto these reserves and then the, the the Indian Act is the legislation that sort of decided how the two cultures were going to exist, the Europeans and the the tri the bands that were already here. So it kind of just goes through and talks about, you know, what what who what it takes to be an Indian. Um you know, like, cause back in the day you could even sell your treaty rights. So, you know, there was all these Europeans here and they wanted to be able to hunt as much as they wanted once these limits and stuff started coming in. So there was a situation came up where now you could sell your treaty rights to another person. So it got kind of weird there, but it's sort of that act that decided who was an Indian, who wasn't and, and what that meant, what they could do, what restrictions or things that came with that. So I've got some, some definitions here from the Indian Act of 1985. So not going back super far, 1985. Most of this stuff is actually current still in the 2020 Act or whenever. If you went on the Canadian government page right now, looked up the Indian Act, most of the stuff would be current now. But it has stuff like in this Act, a band means a body of Indians, um, a for whose use and benefit in common lands, the legal title to which is vested in Her Majesty, have been set apart before, on, or after September 4th, 1951. Ban list. Child includes a legally adopted child and child adopted in accordance with Indian custom. Uh, so that sort of just has, it's very much the legal legislation that, that, that I guess what you could say 
segregates our society in Canada still to this day by DNA. Are you ready to live a more free, healthy, and abundant life? Transform your yard into a food forest and create a system for self-reliance that's easy and enjoyable with our friends at Food Forest Abundance. No matter where you're starting from, you can become more self-reliant. And you can take your self-reliance to the next level by becoming a producer of your own food through growing and foraging. And learn how to turn your property into an income-producing source of economic self-reliance. They can help you get off-grid and learn what systems to employ for food, water, and energy self-reliance. And live abundantly and in full connection with your property and what you produce. Click the link in the description to get started with your very own food forest and have your own sustainable source of livelihood and become self-sufficient with food forest abundance. Just click the link in the description to get started with your very own food forest today. Right on, man. Uh, yeah, very well said. Now, let's talk about how, um, what was did, was there a specific like part of the government that started this? I know as the Indian and Northern Affairs Canada, uh, which was formerly like the Department of Indian Affairs or something, is it, what kind of sect of the government was that? Well, I mean, the act was put into place by the first Prime Minister of Canada. So you know, the Trudeau of his time, mm. Prime Minister John A. Macdonald was the first prime minister of Canada. And at the time that was sort of their top priority. And so the, they worked very closely with um, Now I'm trying to think who the first guy was. It might've been Duncan, uh, Duncan Campbell Scott, or it might've been, I mean, our old prime minister, John Chrétien was in there for a little while, but, but John A. Macdonald was the first prime minister of Canada. And uh, I got a couple quotes here from him. So I'm trying to think this would have been probably, you know, 18, 1876, 1876, when it switched to the Indian Act. The first one was the British American Act or, oh, I can't remember. But anyways, yeah, 1876 is when it switches to the Indian Act. So um, here we go. Here are a few of his quotes. Where am I? Oh, uh, uh, as the architect of the Indian Act and the first Prime Minister of Canada, his opinions on the indigenous populations of Canada are important, dated or not. So here we have uh, to wean them off by slow degrees from their nomadic habits, which have almost become an instinct, and by slow degrees absorb them or settle them on the land. In the meantime, they must be fairly protected. 1883. When the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents, who are savages. And though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training mode are that of an Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. It has been strongly impressed upon myself, as head of the department, that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence. And the only way to do that would be to put them into central training industrial schools where they will acquire the habits and modes of thought and thoughts of white men. Oh, wow. Jeez. Um, 
1882. I have reason to believe that the agents as a whole, and he's referring to the Indian agents here. So the Indian agents would be the person who was in charge of a certain band or a few bands. They would often decide who, what your last name was. So you go around, a lot of Indians will have the same last name that aren't related. And that's because at that time, you know, the, the Indian agent would decide what your last name was when he was sort of registering you because, you know, you'd give some name that he couldn't understand and he'd say, well, you're this now. (laughs) So I have reason to believe that the agents as a whole are doing all they can by refusing food until the Indians are on the verge of starvation to reduce the expense. And that was in the house of commons debates. So, um, yeah, when he, he he was prime minister and uh, and the architect of the Indian Act, so you you know arguably from the get go. Yeah, right, scumbag man. Uh, so I mean, I guess he wasn't killing us all. I mean, there might have been some of that, and we just don't know about it. I'm of the mind that most of the indigenous population of North America probably probably died off from the diseases of like first contact back in the 1600s and were like even undocumented you know Mm. when horses were reintroduced and all that but i mean yeah i mean at least he didn't just kill everybody but yeah yeah, they sort of just they just sort of took over the place and and they took over more and more and more well i know a situation where we where we still don't even have you know, clean drinking water on all the reserves in Canada, but we still have um, plenty of money to send to Ukraine or mm. other countries for COVID or to pay everyone to stay home for a couple of years because we got to close everything down. Now, uh, t- tell us a little bit about what residential schools were. I know this was a big part of what they were doing with the children there. Well, I was basically uh, a school that, you'd go to from the ages of six to 16 and sometimes as old as 18, it would be at the discretion of the school when you, when you got to leave, but you would go when you were six years old, they come to your house, take you and you go to school for um, maybe till Christmas. Maybe if your family can afford to send you home for Christmas for a little while, in most cases you're there straight through to the summer and maybe even beyond that. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, you we were interning these kids out to farms and stuff to help out for the summer to give them what we were calling what we were calling work experience at the time to help teach them how to farm and do this and that. But basically, if you're over six, um, you're 10 months of the year, nine months of the year, you're gone, you're gone away from your home, maybe 50 miles, maybe 100 miles, maybe a thousand miles, depending on how remote your tribe is. And you're there and you're not allowed to speak your language anymore. You're supposed to communicate in French or English all of a sudden. And you're, you're just there the whole time and you start being indoctrinated into it. Cause they're run by the churches too. So it's like a combination between the church and the government to take these kids out of the tribe and teach them European ways, I guess. But I mean, as you can see by the quotes, it's really more about breaking that chain, which I mean, whether it was on purpose or not, we can see, you know, 150 years later, the traumatic effects of that still played out to this day. So the kids would just stay at these these institutions for that length of time for for 10 months. Yeah. 
Oh man, uh, where they were after that time, I guess they were uh, returned to their families. Um, what what about the uh, the adults in these situations? Did they they just you know took their kids? Well, it was illegal, so uh, not the whole time, but I, I believe in the early in the early teens or twenties, it became illegal not to send your kids to school. So it became mandatory. Um, and before, I mean, in the beginning, you have to imagine that you're coming from a tough place where your kids are growing up in this new world, whether you like it or not. Like it's coming, it's coming for you fast. I mean, you, it's it's a tough tough thing it'd be a tough situation i guess as a parent to maybe make do you do you keep your kid on the on the reserve and close to home and just learning those ways or do you somehow prepare them for this new world that's quickly becoming the new normal and you know in retrospect we obviously could have found a a better way to do that that because what, what we've got now is just sort of the ruins of an entire culture that are a few generations into, you know, parents that because now once the school's ended, you've got a generation, generations of people that didn't really raise their kids. And they weren't raised properly and they had maybe abuse issues at school and everything else. So, you know, you've got this sort of compounding effect generation after generation of trauma that leads to, you know, 7% of, kids in Canada are Indian today by percentage. And it's still something like 54.4% of the kids in foster care or in the care of the state are still indigenous. Um, so it's still, you know, it's still happening, I guess, is the, is the thing. I can't imagine the level of indoctrination that probably went into those schools. I mean, I can just remember my own schooling here and the level of propaganda and and uh, indoctrination that I received. I can't imagine being taken away from my family for like 10 months out of the year just to be indoctrinated into a culture that doesn't like your culture and wants to transform you into something else. That is uh, unimaginable. Yeah, and I mean, during this time, the religious ceremonies are banned, the potlatch, uh, the sun dance, the powwow, all that was made illegal by the state. So technically, you could still go underground with it and stuff like that, but it was illegal. So these kids are at school finding out that all this stuff is devil worship. Now it's illegal. What were some of the like the punishments? What was the if if you were caught still practicing some of this stuff? What would happen? It's hard to say. I mean, in a lot of cases, honestly, probably nothing. Maybe you'd get charged. Maybe you'd get raid uh, raided or something like that. But I mean, when they were taking the kids to residential school, they'd show up with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, so the kids would be taken by force if necessary. Whereabouts uh, Indigenous kids are seven times more likely to end up in foster care. And there's an argument to be made that obviously there's a reason that some of those kids are in foster care. And I've seen some of this firsthand. But um, a lot of reserves in Canada, just like a lot of reservations in the United States, I've had the, the pleasure and privilege to travel through a lot of North America, especially the Midwest, even through the Navajo Reserve, you know, a bunch of the reserve reservations in Montana, as well as a bunch in Canada. And uh, for the most part, they're fucked. 
they're desolate. They're in the worst parts of whatever country they're in. Like um, the reservations up in northwestern Montana are in some of the most windswept regions of North America. Like what every time I drive through there, I can't believe that those people are still there because now we've got supermarkets and shit and Amazon and they can figure all that stuff out. But they've been there for a fucking 150 years. And I don't know how the fuck you eked out a living there a hundred years ago. I really don't because it's not a very hospitable place. And that's the same with the Navajo reservations down in, oh, what is it, Arizona and Utah? You know, it's the same sort of thing down there. It's not a good place. And that's the same thing that happened in Canada. When you drive onto a res- reserve in Canada, nine times out of 10, you're going to know you're there. And you're going to be like, what the fuck? And it's probably very similar to a ghetto in the United States, but it's more like in the bush as opposed to in some some suburb. And and like I said, now you're you're talking about a hundred years now for the last 30, 40, they've been back into into the home. But for a hundred years, you got raised by nuns in a school and uh, religion and people that probably didn't like you that much. And I'm sure there were some good ones, but there's a lot of horror stories, too, a lot. And. You did that until you were 16 or 18, and then you were probably suffering from a shitload of trauma. And then you went, and maybe you're drinking or whatever you're doing, but then you have some kids of your own. And then, you know, they get snatched up when they're six years old, and you deal with that trauma where they're dealing with this new trauma, and everyone's probably blaming each other each other for this whole fucking ordeal. And then that all stops in like the seventies and everything's supposed to go back to normal, but it doesn't because now you've got parents raising that were never raised and the culture has been completely devastated and, and there's not a lot of money. There's no money and you don't own any of the land. So you can't mortgage it to, to do anything like this. So you don't have anything of value or collateral to borrow any money from the bank or anything like that. So you're 100% stuck on the government dole. I mean, now we've got some instances where some reserves around Calgary and Canada are doing quite well. You know, there's some on oil country that are doing quite well. Those are the ones you hear about. Well, there's 650 reserves in Canada and a lot of them aren't doing real well, including the one that, you know, I don't live on. I'm what... So the goal of the Indian Act was obviously it's it's written down all over the place was assimilation. So instead of going to war with the Indians, they wanted to assimilate us into their European culture, which for the most part, they've been successful at. There's not a lot of indigenous people in Canada that aren't tied into the Western system now in some way, shape or form, if not a lot. And the ones that are probably, you know, it's, it's pretty slim pickings. I mean, I'm still hunting a lot of my food, but I've never lived on the reserve a day in my life. I'm very much a um, assimilated Indian. I'm fully assimilated into European culture. And I mean, that was probably inevitable. It was probably inevitable. And it seems to be more and more inevitable as we move forward, maybe we could have gone about it different, but, but we did not So, so here we are. I don't know what the solution is moving forward. I don't think it's, I don't think it's sustainable to have two different um, 
segregated populations by legislation moving forward. Something's got to give. Yeah. Um, but what the, a lot of the misconceptions in is Canada is that we all get all this money and that we got all this land. So, I mean, the two I'll tell you right now is that I don't get any money for being Indian. I pay probably more taxes than you. And no, you don't own any land. So that's starting to change. That is starting to change. In the last 10 years, more and more, there was just just the other day, I think the Susina, the tribe here, the band here got a $1.3 billion deal or something like that for some land that was taken away a while ago. And I know there was a few other stories over the last few years about the federal government actually just saying, okay, it's yours. Now, earlier, that's one way to do it. I mean, I think that's, that's gotta be a process in closing the door on it is, is some land has to be given. I mean, I don't know how you figure it out. I'm glad it's not my fucking job. If they had a council or something like that, where we could all figure it out together, I'd love to be a part of that. I wouldn't yeah. want to be the guy that has to figure it out because you're going to piss off a bunch of people somewhere. But I mean, it, we're going to figure it out by a bunch of long, hard conversations, not taking stuff personally, not losing our temper. But it's yeah. got to be figured out. I don't think we can keep going down this road, but we don't get away from it by ignoring it. So that's kind of what the books are about. And the new book is very much, I mean, I get credit for writing it. I didn't really write that much of it. There's, you know, probably less than 10 pages in there are, that are written by me. It's very much just a collection of testimony from all of these people whose names are all in the book that gave their statements to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada between 2008 and 2015. And, I mean, the the main reason I brought that out is because it's fucking impossible to find. You can go onto some backroom website and you can find a shitty PDF of it. I just want it to be a nice, shiny book that people can actually look at and read. They don't have to find it online. They can hand it to someone and it's it's literally just uh, what I think it's about three hundred pages of um, straight up testimony. It's just one after another of people's recollections from their time at a residential school. And it's important because there's no more of these. I mean, even these stories are at the tail end, right? I mean, we're getting people because these this is in two thousand eight, two thousand fifteen. If they're 60 years old, sure, then they were in the harsh school times. But if they're 40 years old, they're into, you know, when it was starting to get a little bit easier. There's no stories in here from the 1800s or from the early 1900s. And we'll probably never have those, but at least we got these ones. Um, So I think they should exist in as many forms as possible. I'd love to see more books with more of them printed because that just, Ensures they'll still be around, I guess, in a hundred years. We we're lucky to have these ones. How did you find your your testimonials for the book? Oh well, I didn't actually talk to any of them, so it's all uh, I've just mined these out of the oh, all right the on. all the commission reports. Yeah, so if you, I mean, I, that's why I say I can't take credit for this. I really just put it together because it was one of those things where I had to to. It's just like a a process that nobody's going to go through to find these things. It's they're buried into thousands and thousands of pages of 
of documents. So now earlier you were you were kind of touched on the mass graves or unmarked graves, and I've heard this from different researchers before. And you said that you came to well you kind of claim to the conclusion that there may not have been kind of a genocide situation. It more may have been more of a disease or, or natural death because of the situations that they were in. Right. Yeah. I think that's like, uh, the biggest killer of Indians was probably tuberculosis. And, uh, I think that was, I think the schools were especially poor. They were especially sort of, uh, secluded very much the labor and the the effort of running the schools was put on the staff and the students to a large degree as well so maybe you'd work in the morning and have school in the afternoon or vice versa um, and it was a hard time I mean it's a cold country it's a cold country you're not eating well all of a sudden so you're used to a you know, dried meats and stuff all winter, eating, hunting and all that. And now all of a sudden you're eating bread and grains all the time, you know? Um, and now you're staying in a room with 30 other kids. Um, and there's a ton of stories of it being malicious. Uh, I don't know. I wasn't there, but there was, um, there was Dr. Peter Bryce who released, he came out with a commission. Um, I don't know the date off the top of my hand, but he basically, he was, uh, he was told to go and, and take a look at all the residential schools to see how they were doing. Um, and he wrote a report. I'm just looking for his name in the book here, but, but he wrote a report about, um, about how many tuberculosis cases there were in these these things. And I'm looking for it in these charts because we had a bunch of charts in the book that had uh, the rates. And a lot of these cases, he was saying you're seeing a 50, a 50%. So here it is. It was in, in 1922, Dr. Peter Bryce released his report. And it claimed that Indian children... And he was the, so he was in charge. He was the health inspector in charge of inspecting the schools. That was his job. He was forced into retirement after he came out with his report, after which he published it as a book uh, so that he could try and get it. So, like an old school whistleblower, 1922. Yeah, he found he couldn't get to. So, in his report, Dr. Bryce claimed that Indian children were being systematically and deliberately killed in the residential schools. He cited an average mortality rate of between 35 and 60% and alleged that staff and church officials were regularly withholding or falsifying records and other evidence of children's deaths. Further, Dr. Bryce claimed that a primary means of killing Native children was to deliberately expose them to communicable diseases such as tuberculosis and then deny them any medical care or treatment. A practice referred to by top Anglican church officials in the Globe and Mail on May 29th, 1953. In the words of Dr. Bryce himself, I believe the conditions are being deliberately created in our residential schools to spread infectious diseases. It's not unusual for children who are dying from consumption to be admitted to schools and housed alongside healthy children. This is a national crime. 
So, and then there came out with a bunch of testimonies now that we've got in the nineties, but anyway, he was relieved of his, of his post in the twenties for coming out with that report. So oh, yeah. he, he released his book. He actually contested and tried to say, no, no, I don't want to retire. I would like to keep working, but he lost and was forced to retire. Well, if I mean, there's theories uh, that blankets were given to our natives and indigenous people that were that have diseases intentionally. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's true, but it wouldn't surprise me if you know we were doing things nefarious like that to intentionally cause disease and death for these people because uh, apparently they uh, didn't want them around to begin with. So you know, I can't imagine. I can't imagine the the mentality of these 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 people that uh, throughout our history that would just either enslave or destroy a whole nother type kind of people uh, just because they aren't them and they find them different. I've never never understood that. It's insane to me. It's it seems insane, but it's I mean it's hard to imagine. I guess what it would have been like back then. Yeah. I, I mean, it seems easier for us, our, us like social outcasts or whatever us podcasters are, um, whatever us fucking podcasters are. Um, we seem easier to get along, I guess, with those. But I, I, I don't know. Everyone I know is super cool. They wouldn't do it, but we're still doing it all over the place. You know, it's just like, what the fuck? How does this happen? Yeah. I mean, right now it's I don't know what's happening in Ukraine, but nobody's talking about the fact that it's happening in Israel and Palestine. It's happening in Yemen with fucking helicopters made in Canada and bombs made in the USA. Mm. We just I don't know what the fuck it is, man. We just like fighting. <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, something else that uh, I saw you write about is the Starlight Tours. Could you tell us about a little bit about what that is? So Starlight Tour was, uh, uh, and I should say it's alleged. I don't. I mean, there was, a, I think there was a civil suit and there was some payouts and stuff like that. But it was basically, and there's this uh, kind of a story as old as time in Canada about um, uh, drunk Indians being picked up by police officers and taken outside the city and just dropped off. Maybe with your jacket, maybe without, you know, honestly, if it's cold in the middle of January, it probably doesn't matter. You know, if you're a couple hours away from someplace and it's minus 40, which is the same in Celsius as it is in Fahrenheit, you're not going to make it far. So there was a, a bunch of big scandals in around Saskatoon and Regina about this happening over the years. I've also heard about it out of Winnipeg, Manitoba. But the big one, of course, is is I think Saskatoon is the one that's mentioned in the book because that's the one that you know went to court a few times and there, there did end up being inspired. There is some people that to this day would would maintain that that is still an urban legend and doesn't happen. But I mean, it's one that's ended up in multiple courtrooms, so people have lost their jobs over it. So I I wasn't there, but it 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 seems to be worth mentioning. Well, yeah, I mean, something that is is very real is, in recent years, the missing Indigenous women in Canada and, you know, the sex trafficking and human trafficking epidemic that's going on across the, the planet. But from uh, I've heard from plenty of researchers and, and fellow uh, friends in Canada that this is, this is really bad what's happening to uh, Indigenous women there, right? 
Yeah, and I've heard it's actually in, in the American side too. You know what I heard is a lot of it is fucking happening like up and down that St. Lawrence Seaway where they can just sort of dump them on boats. They drug them and bring them out onto boats. I've heard uh, my my ex-mother-in-law worked in the in sort of that industry and she said that was happening a lot. But I mean, I I agree that's down that same vein. It's down the same vein, except, you know, let's be honest, women, women are more apt to be stolen and men are more apt to be killed because, you know, that's just the nature of the world we live in these days. In that situation, the women have uh, more value, I guess, in the sex trade than dudes do. Yeah, man, it's it's. It's extremely infuriating and so saddening that these whole groups of indigenous people were stripped from their their culture and the, the their traditions, and it's been replaced with you know whatever the white man was uh, trying to indoctrinate him with. It, it's gone on until uh, you know recent years, until uh, probably a couple hundred years ago uh, or sooner, and we still treat our fellow humans like this. I would argue that fucking we were like six months away from putting unvaccinated people on trains. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe a little further, but it's not fucking five years. You know, I don't care who you are. There was motherfuckers that were ready to do that. And if you don't believe me, I don't know what I'd have to do to make you believe me, but they were carding people to get into fucking restaurants. I You still can't get on a plane in Canada if you can't show papers that say you're vaccinated. So we're willing to not let people onto planes. We're willing to not let people into restaurants. We're willing to not let people into maybe hospitals. We're willing to not let people into schools. Are we really that far from, you know, just not letting them in town? Are we? Yeah, I was going to ask you how it is in Canada now. Um, Has anything changed in the past few months? Are they uh, are they letting up on their agendas at all? No, they seem to be doubling down. I mean, Alberta's Alberta dropped all Alberta dropped their vaccine passport as soon as the trucker rally started. Um, as did as did Saskatchewan, I think. Now BC hung on to it the longest, and the feds are still holding on to it. Uh, you still can't. You couldn't if you can't come into Canada if you're not a Canadian and you don't have your shots. Maybe you can figure it out if you have a quarantine plan or something. But if you're not Canadian, I don't think so. I don't think they give a fuck. Now, that being said, we don't know what your shop papers look like. We might pretend we do, but we really don't. So, And the cool thing about America is you guys don't have like national health care like we do. So you don't even have some database that might hold all that information. So you might be able to just fake it anyway. Um, in Canada, you need your shots to get on a plane domestically. Technically, I think you need your shots to go to America too. I think that's how Biden's got it set up right now, but you still need that to fly right now to get on a plane, a train or a boat. Maybe I think technically, um, I still see some masks around. I'm still, I'm working on two hospitals right now and both of those still require masking. The vaccine stuff seems to be mostly gone away. I have a 
Well, let's just say I've got a paper that says I have my shots. I have a paper that allows me to travel. It was not easy to get in Canada. I'll tell you that <laughs> because we took that shit super serious. It cost me a fortune and uh, probably some some light fraud. Allegedly. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. That's just Man, I need I was, you to explain how does this prime minister thing in Canada work? Is he is he Justin Trudeau prime minister forever? I mean, do they have limits? What how does he that could work? Be. No, he could be. So how, the prime minister is like the leader of the party. And so whatever party's in power, he's a prime minister that they become the prime minister. So if the conservatives were in power right now, I guess it'd be that Candace whatever chick unless Pierre wins, then it'll be him. If it was the NDP, it would be uh, Jagmeet Singh. And that's kind of how it works. So the same as the UK system, I think, pretty close. Basically, we all get a representative. They're all from these parties, which seems fucked up to me already. How is a political party not a total breach of the system? You know, so I don't want my representative who just happens to be Martin Shields, who I talk to quite a bit <clears throat> because he humors me. I don't have any influence with him, but I send him nasty emails and leave him nasty messages and bless his heart. He always calls me back, uh, lets me scream at him for a while and hangs up. I don't know if he, or he never hangs up on me. Sorry. He'll let me finish and you know say goodbye. And, but, um, which is probably already a lot more accessible than your guys's con because he would be the equivalent of say a congressman uh, in the states. So I can get a hold of him if I want to. Um, he can't really do anything about it. But my point is, he's part of the conservative party, so he votes with the conservatives most of the time. And I'm thinking, but you're my representative. So shouldn't you just like come to our constituency, figure out what the fuck we want, and then go vote based on that? And that seems like crazy talk these days, but I just feel like the whole, just the, the idea of a political party is a breach of the system. That's not what it's meant to be. It's I guess that's what a representative democracy is, but you're supposed to represent me, not the fucking liberal party. Or the Conservative Party. I mean, I'm, I come off as right wing, but I'm probably left on most things. I'm just right on the ones that piss people off, like yeah. guns and freedom. Well, yeah, that's the way it goes. Uh, They're you trying see, to steal our guns right now in Canada. Yeah. Um, what, what's the newest uh, update with that? Well, he says he's, he's introducing a freeze on handgun buying. Which will probably pass. I don't see why it won't. Between him and his NDP, they just kind of pass whatever they want right now. So if he introduces it, I don't see any reason it won't pass. We clearly seen during the trucker protest that the none of those can, uh, people give a fuck what their constituents say. I mean, you had entire constituencies up in arms over the representative voting with Justin Trudeau, and they still just did it anyway. They just don't give a fuck. They're pretty blatant about it. So I'm sure it'll pass. I do think it'll get challenged on the way through. So he's saying he wants to end all buying of handguns and all transfers, which would include like a second hand sale, like me selling you my gun. 
I don't think he'll be successful on that one, but I do think he will successfully stop the import of new handguns in Canada. So basically he'll put a, a market cap on all the handguns that are in Canada. Now, if it's up to him, he wants to make it so that all the handguns that are in Canada are the only ones and we can't get rid of them. So I could only hand my guns down to my kids one day. Uh, I don't think he'll be successful on that. On the prohibited weapons, he wasn't, I can, or well, he was to a certain extent, but it'd be a lot to get into here and I don't fully understand it. But basically, I think that he'll be successful in stopping new handguns from coming into Canada. I don't think he'll be able to stop me from selling my handgun to another Canadian if they hold the proper license. But I could be wrong about that. I don't think it'll happen this time. It'll probably happen eventually. I fully don't expect that either of my daughters will able either be able to buy a handgun. I, I bought two Glocks just so that I'd have one of each one for each of them to pass down to them one day. So I can just say, here you go. So they're like, that's the way the gun laws have worked in Canada so far. If you've already had it, you've been grandfathered in and they've left you alone. I'm not saying that can't change, but that's sort of the precedent. So that's what I'm hoping for. Now he announced last week that he was going to do it. And um, every gun store, every handgun in Canada appears to have sold in seven days. So every gun shop across the country has sold an entire year's worth of inventory in one week, and there's no handguns available anywhere. So he sold more, he sold a year's worth of guns in three days. Um, but anyway, having a handgun in Canada isn't an easy thing to do. So I have to have a special license, a restricted class pal that comes with a huge background check. I had to take a course send it off to the firearms office of Canada, which is the government. They spent four months. I had to fill out a giant form with past contacts, my old last name, if I had one, all this other stuff. And then they have it four months, do a background check on you, do all that. And then they send you this license. Okay. I have my license. Now I can buy. Now you need a regular one of these. It only only takes about two months to get the background check on your regular firearms license would be for your rifles and shotguns. The RPAL takes about four months because the background check is a lot more extensive. They start looking at if you had a fucking assault charge when you were a teenager, you're in trouble. Um, so anyway, now I have my license. Now I can buy handguns. Great. Okay. So I go down to the store, find a handgun I like. I want that one. Okay. Pay them for it. Can't take it home though. You got to wait. So now I got to go home and wait because they now contact the firearms officer of Canada. There's a few, there's a head one, but there's an office in New Brunswick that deals with it all. And they say, okay, Darren Grimes wants to buy this gun. Is that okay? Government says, yep, that's okay. So they fax them or email them a transfer paper that says, okay, this gun that's registered to be at this gun shop can now move to blah, 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 Darren's house. That's it. I can't stop for gas on the way home. Straight out into my safe at home. Now, when I'm transferring that gun, it has to have a, a trigger lock on it. And it has to be inside another case that's locked as well. Now, if I want to go out to the bush, I can't take my handgun. In order to buy a handgun, I have to be a member of a range. 
So the only place I'm allowed to take my handguns is to the range that I'm a member of. If I want to take them to a different range, I have to call the chief firearms officer and say that, hey, I want to take my handguns to this range. Okay, that's fine. So now on my way to the range, I can't stop for gas, can't stop at your buddy's house, can't stop at the grocery store, nothing. If you get caught in any of those places, you're breaking the law with your handgun. And then I can go to the range, shoot, same thing on the way home. So that's the handgun laws in Canada. If I have my handgun fucking any place but in my house, at the range, or double locked on my way back and forth between those places, I'm breaking the law. So I would argue that no ground crimes in Canada are committed with a legal firearm. Yeah, man, that's insane. How how do you think the uh, from your perspective the majority of Canadians feel about uh, well different things about uh, trying to be disarmed by the government about uh, the the vax and COVID narratives that they've been put through the the draconian agendas that they're going through how do you think the majority of people are feeling about this stuff? Well, in my section of Canada, well, I mean, I'm in sort of, they say we're the Texas or whatever we're not. Not far gone. We we didn't. Oh, I shouldn't say far gone. I love Texas. I didn't mean that in a derogatory way. I, they're a little gung ho on some things. I mean, there's a few things in Texas that I'm like, really, really. I mean, you talk about freedom, but anyway, we're not going to get into that here. Um, what are we talking about? No, how did oh, Alberta? So I'm in Alberta. Canadian. People people hate Trudeau here. Um, every fourth or fifth vehicle would have at this point, the Canadian flags become sort of a protest symbol or a fuck Trudeau or a something. So Alberta, Alberta, I mean, you can dig up old bumper stickers from the seventies of the West and Alberta hating on Trudeau because his dad was in charge back then. Um, so the West has a very anti Ottawa, anti Trudeau sentiment at least Saskatchewan and Alberta do. I'm, I was actually surprised that as many people went with the vaccine as they did. Um, and, and, you know, the thing is I could go around and no one was really okay with it. If you talk to everyone individually, they're like, this is fucked, man. But, you know, also, do you have shots? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I wanted to go for dinner. Or, you know, I'm going to France, you know, or something, you know, so... No one was kind. Nobody I know is like this was a good idea. But at the same time, ninety-five percent of them just got it and and jumped through the hoops. Or even the ones that said they weren't gonna, they did. I mean, I made it until uh, the beginning of this year, and I hired a sponge because I just got sick of it. It just became easier to hire a sponge so I could get a piece of paper and just carry on with my fucking life. Graham, bless his heart, is still uh, still on it, just straight up. I mean, between the two of us, we've been threatened with so many fines over the last couple of years. Just in, just in April, Graham was threatened with a $5,800 fine again for not filling out the Arrive Can app or being vaccinated or having a test. And uh, these fines, they just never show up. So I was busted out of quarantine once by a police officer. And I basically said, listen, man, we're going to have this conversation. It's going to have to be in a courtroom. And that was it. He's like, well, you could get this fine. I was like, all right, well, just find me then and we'll go to court. That's how this works. And, you know, he's like, I, well, I got to call my boss. And 
I mean, I should touch wood because maybe I'll just get like eight fines in the mail all of a sudden out of the blue. But some, most of these fines are going back to, you know, into 2021. We, we traveled. I did more international travel in 2021 than I probably have in almost the rest of my life combined. Yeah, man, and, it's all uh, an illusion. <laughs> you know, you're oh, yeah, well, in the beginning, the we started a fake company. We started a company called Exo Energy because they said that all this oil and gas was exempt for travel. So we just said, okay, well, we're energy consultants. And we made business cards and a website. And then we just said, oh, yeah, we're just going down for work. Okay. I'm going to, okay. But, but yeah, then they yeah. changed the rules so that that wouldn't get you through anymore. And I mean, it's still, I joke about it, but there's a bunch of fucking Canadians that think that they can't leave their own country right now because they don't have their shots. I can tell you, you can leave. You just have to be comfortable lying. Mm. And I don't think it counts as lying when you're lying to the state. Well, they're lying to you about everything else. So, you know, why not? <laughs> why not do a little, uh, do a little lying of your own? Uh, do you have any hope for uh, the future of Canada, for the future of indigenous peoples, for uh, or any suggestions or solutions to what maybe uh, people could do to start turning things around? Oh, yeah, I think it'll all be great. I mean, I really do. I'm an optimist to a fault. Um, I do think, I don't think the tide has turned, but I think the boat might have, like, the steering wheel's been turned on the boat. Culture's like this, like the Titanic, right? It's going to take a minute to turn that motherfucker around. It's going to take a minute just to slow down the momentum that it's built up. I, you know, this analogy doesn't make sense if people haven't been on a boat. But a boat's not like a car. When you get a big old boat steaming in the water and you try and stop it, it's hard to fucking stop. It's going to take you on a set amount of space, not like a car where up to the stop sign. It's going to take you some space. I'd imagine in those big fucking super carriers, it's got to be miles, right? You must have to like put that thing in reverse and crank it to slow down for a couple miles before you get port because you've got all that. You've got you know, hundreds of thousands of tons built up to speed. Um, so I think we're kind of in the process of turning around. Honestly, everyone's freaking out about some, about um, left things right now. And I get it. I mean, the dude's literally trying to take my guns away. We got to there that he's, that he might successfully ban handguns. Um, but if I'm being super honest, I'm more concerned on the backswing because there seems to be a pendulum that goes back and forth. And the last time we were over in the other place, uh, we fucked a bunch of shit up over on the other side of the world. And I feel like when this motherfucker swings back to the right, it could get real crazy. I mean, let's take a look. I, I, it, honestly, I don't want to talk about a bunch of this stuff. I don't want to get into my politics. Um, because I'm an idiot about most of them. And it's all just, you know, my own biases and experiences that are coming up with those opinions. But you can look at some crazy right things happening right now, sort of while we're on the far left of the pendulum swing. I think if you look deep enough, you're going to say, whoa, that's happening while we're on the probably the farthest left swing we've been in a long fucking time in the culture. So what happens when that motherfucker comes all the way back over to the right? Where's that place? Yeah, man. I don't know. 
but I'm pretty optimistic about everything. You know, I'm spoiled. I'm blessed. I have a great life. I have great people around me. And uh, I think that I think that enough people will wake up to maybe, you know, make it all right. And if not, I'll just move to the States and 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 for a few more years. I got I got an address in Montana and I could see myself heading down there as far as indigenous. um, We're the fastest growing sector in Canada. So I think that's good. I think I think we're on the upswing. I mean, maybe it's just me, but it seems like a lot of those things that like when I was a kid, booze was cool. I don't know about you, but it was like what everyone was doing. And I feel like it's less like that these days. Maybe I'm just old and out of touch, but it seems like there's less people at the bars. It seems like my kids aren't interested in it fucking at all. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's trending away from that. And maybe that'll help the indigenous community with some of their trauma we're also starting to uh, accept and 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 um, engage with trauma a lot more on a cultural level. You know, at least admit that it's there and it's causing problems. So all that's sort of moving in a good direction. So, I mean, I think you'll see, you know, the next generation of Indigenous Canadian. I don't know what that's going to look like. I know it looks great for me and uh, I'm going to keep trying to make it look better. Right on, man. I love it. Darren, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Um, before you head out, let everyone know where they can find your books and uh, Grimerica Show and all the good stuff. So the books, honestly, you can go to canadianshame.com if you want a signed copy or anything. But honestly, the easiest thing to do, as much as I hate to say it, actually, I don't hate to say it. I can't hate Amazon too much because I'm pretty in bad with them at this point. Um you know, with the audio company, we've got over 60 titles through that. They're uh, almost exclusively on Audible, which is owned by Amazon. So, you know, it's tough to bitch about that. So the best <laughs> yeah. thing is probably just go to Amazon, whatever country you're in, type in either a Canadian shame or in their own words, or if you even just type in Darren Grimes, you're going to get a mix of my stuff and some little British punks. Um, it'd be pretty easy to distinguish who's is who's and he hasn't written much. So mine will probably be on top. I have a great community. That's, you know, giving me a bunch of great reviews. So, and then there's the audiobooks, um, adultbrain.ca. When flat earther, David Weiss told me to use my adult brain, I took him serious <laughs> and we started a publishing company called adult brain publishing, um, which, which owns the publishing rights to both my books as well as I think 62 now um, sort of classics. I don't have it in front of me, but a bunch of these sort of esoteric and theosophical and philosophical, you know, some of the greatest books at the turn of the century that weren't available on audio and didn't look like they ever were going to be on available on audio. We've republished them through adult brain, made them available on audio. Um, so we own the exclusive audio rights to a bunch of great titles like the secret teachings of all ages and lectures on ancient philosophy by Manly P. Hall, uh, the entire, entire Charles Fort collection. If you're into the 14 stuff, we've got all that stuff, uh, all the Helena Blavatsky stuff, like the secret, secret doctrine volumes, one, two, and three, and a few other things, a bunch of Annie Besant. I mean, there's 60-some titles, too many to mention. 
But if you head over to adultbrain.ca or if you just go to Audible and type in Graham Dunlop because he does most of the narrating, all those books will come up. There's about 60 of them. There are, most of them are over 30 hours long. Man, the secret teachings. Jeez, that must have been on taking. Honestly, huh? I'm thinking. It, the, so here's the thing. The secret teachings of all ages <laughs> was the first one we did. Yeah. And now we're 50 books in and we're like, I think we need to, might need to redo that one. He's become such a better narrator and just that we've gotten so much better at it. We're thinking about redoing that one, but it's in there. And Russ from Brothers of the Serpent was nice enough to do all the, the cut in notes that are throughout it. But that book's 35 hours long. You get it for <laughs> one audible credit. Nice. So uh, if people are into that kind of stuff, they can check that out. Uh, we also have all the <clears throat> tours and workshops that we've been doing that have really taken off. People seem to be loving that. <clears throat> That's uh, contact at the cabin.com. We got a Randall Carlson tour coming up in next week, actually starts on Monday in Montana. And then in September, we've got two of the Scablands tours with Randall Carlson. That's looking at all the stuff he showed on the Joe Rogan experience, the dry falls, all that. It's an all-inclusive week-long adventure. Amazing, amazing times. And then next year, we got a couple great ones. We got the Mount Shasta Magic on the Mountain. Looks like we're going to team up with Carlwood and THC on that one. So that's going to get interesting. Yes, nice. And then my personal favorite is the Utah event which is contact at the canyons with David Matheson and Brandon Powell. We go to Bryce Canyon in the middle of the night and check out the stars next year's the 420 bash. So this thing sells out every year. Next year's already like 20% sold. We're kicking it off at 4:20 PM on 4:20, and we're probably gonna get high and then check out some stars and spend a couple days hiking some national parks, Bryce Canyon, Zion Canyon, we rent side-by-sides up on the mountain. We have a great time. And the beauty about these events is they might seem a little pricey, but here's the thing. You just pay that, and you don't fucking think about it again. You get to the airport or wherever. Usually it's an airport we tell you to get to. We're going to pick you up there. We're going to feed you. We're going to pay for all your shit all weekend. If we're going to any parks, we're going to pay all that entry fees. We're going to feed you. We're going to put a roof over your head. It's going to include everything while you're there. The only thing we don't include is alcohol for liability purposes. I haven't been known to supply some weed. And uh, yeah, so that's the contact of the cabin. Of course, we do have the big Egypt trip this year, but that's already sold out. Um, but we'll probably do it again next year. So good to get a contact at the cabin.com and just sign up for the email list if you're into that kind of stuff. I mean, we should do something together down the yeah, road. Man. I see you did a meetup not long ago, so maybe we should collaborate on something and if you got something in mind, like we should get an email going. I'd love to do something with you and your audience. If you guys want to do something cool. Yeah, um, man, I love that stuff. We I definitely want to do more stuff like that. And we're going to be traveling this summer, starting to shoot a docuseries. So that might be a good time to, to link up for sure. Fuck yeah. I love getting down to the States whenever I can. So if you're up in the Northwest at all, mm-hmm. let me know. And then, of course, there's the podcast. Grimerica Outlawed is the new one. It's a membership one where the first hour is free and the second hour is for members only. It's six bucks a month. I think there's 90 some episodes of that. We just started last year. And then there's the Grimerica show, which is the OG one. It's been around for nine years. It's all free. Every episode, we just put them out. If you like them, send us the cash or send us something cool, whatever. And uh, we're on episode 550 of that. And then we have the Rockfin show, which is the only place we do video now. 
we gave up on YouTube video and streaming and everything else because it's we're ugly and it's too much work. So now we only do the Rockfin show once every month or so, and that's where we scratch our sort of video itch. The last show we did with the Brothers of the Serpent was probably some of the most oof, conclusive evidence I've seen for um, manipulating rocks with ease for Egypt. And if you don't want to be a sign up for Rockfin because that's a premium thing, you can go to my YouTube channel, our YouTube channel, and there's the 30 minute sort of highlight reel from it. Um, oh, I'm telling you, Chris, you would love this stuff. This stuff will fucking blow your mind. If you haven't had them on already, I highly recommend it. Yeah, well, I am on Rockfin, so I'm going to go check this out after I talk to you and uh, and see what this is all about. That sounds fascinating. It, it's the craziest It's craziest stuff I've seen for Egypt. If I didn't know that they were quarrying those rocks, I would say this is 100% evidence for geopolymers. Oh, shit. But it has the same marks in the quarry. So yeah. I don't know what the fuck going on, but it looks like someone was scraping Play-Doh with a butter knife. Except yeah, definitely have to check that out. Granite. Wow. It's fantastic. One of the best things I've seen on Egypt in a long, long time. Awesome. And that's about everything I'm up to. I love it, man. This was great. Uh, we're going to have to do this more often. And like you said, we'll, we'll, we'll set something up maybe during the summer and get together for sure. I would like that. It'd be nice to meet in the real, in the meat space. Yeah, man, for sure. All right. That was great. Until next time, everyone have an excellent evening and we'll talk again tomorrow. We'll see y'all then.